Today on Spirit Inspire, we talk about a lot of things. About what is the worst idea in the world, mercy, suffering, and diaper poop. With Dr. Peter Kraft, starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Welcome to another episode of Spirit Inspire. I'm Isaac Fox, your host for today, joined as usual with my good friends and wonderful co-hosts, Mr. Eric Huff. Hello, everyone. And Mr. John Soule. Good day, everyone. We are also delighted and honored to have a very special guest for today's episode. Dr. Peter Kraft has authored over 100 books, including a couple of recent releases, such as How to Destroy Western Civilization and Other Ideas from the Cultural Abyss, and also Ha! A Christian Philosophy of Humor. He has also been Professor of Philosophy at Boston College since 1965, a regular public speaker, father, grandfather, I have absolutely no idea how he manages all of this, but welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Dr. Craig, it is really great to have you. Um, we've been really excited, really looking forward to this. And I know you're in town this evening um, to give a talk a little bit later on at Immaculata, one of our great local Catholic schools. And you graciously, again, with your busy schedule, took some time out of the day to come and meet with us. So thank you very much for that. Yeah. Well, I guess if we had all the time in the world, we would like to ask lots of questions, get your thoughts on various things, but we had been discussing beforehand um, over the last couple of weeks, maybe a kind of a big topic to address with you, sort of a big question, because in your career as a professor, as an author, as a philosopher, you have spent much of your life engaging with the big ideas, good or bad, of great thinkers throughout history of the last, what? Two and a half, three thousand years, mm -hmm. I suppose. And in 1948, uh, Richard M. Weaver wrote a book called Ideas Have Consequences. And they definitely do. I think sometimes it's easy for us to imagine that the ideas of the great thinkers are relegated to the halls of academia and don't really affect our daily lives. But they do. They do, don't they? So the question we wanted to ask you today is when we look around our current culture, Western civilization with a lot of problems and very concerning issues, and also look at all the various philosophies, ideologies, or isms that have influenced it, such as postmodernism, nihilism, Marxism, all these different ideas. If you could sort of pinpoint or pick out one big idea that you would say has been the most influential or has done the most damage, um, what would that be? And I guess the short version of the question is, what is the worst idea in the world today? <laughs> the most dangerous idea ever conceived by the mind of man is the idea of God, because it destroys all the idols. It's mm. a very destructive idea, a very threatening idea. Yeah. Uh, if you were to take all the ideas that all the human beings in the entire history of the world have ever come up with and put them in one side of a scale, and put the single idea of God on the other side of the scale, uh, the idea of God would infinitely outweigh all those other ideas because it's the idea of infinite perfection yeah. with no compromise. So uh, I'm going to give a very unoriginal question, uh, answer to your question. Uh, what is the idea that is destroying Western civilization? 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, told us the answer to that question. We've forgotten God. Yeah. It's God or nothing, and we've got nothing. Yeah. Um, I guess kind of historically over the last couple of hundred years, where do you see that trend beginning, at least in terms of ideas or thinkers or I philosophers? I think there was a certain incident in a garden about a snake and an apple. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes back a little bit before the yeah. last few hundred years. <laughs> yes. You know, it's interesting because I had no idea how you are going to answer that question. And uh, I'm, I'm actually really happy that you said that about the garden. Um, just to share a little bit of a thought I've had over the last few years with you about the garden and the apple and the snake, because I think we often think of that the apple is the temptation. And when you look at the passage closely, it seems to me that there's the beginning of a certain atheism there, because the devil is working very hard to destroy the correct idea of God. He's mm -hmm. proposing that God is jealous, not mm -hmm. very great. He's dishonest. Mm -hmm. So do you think that's really kind of the original, maybe the only temptation is to destroy the image of God in our minds? Yes, because in the Bible, uh, the issue is not between atheism and theism. Only the fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's a question mm -hmm. of, of, of the character of God. Is he trustable? Is right. he good? Or does he have a dark side? That's, that's always the temptation, to create God in our own image. Yeah. One wag said once that uh, God created us in his image, and we have been returning to him the compliment ever since. <laughs> that's very good. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I think also looking at the Garden of Eden, we see that the devil is kind of reflecting his image there, because all the things he's attributing to God are really what we would attribute to the devil. Isn't it interesting that wicked people love it when good people are exposed as wicked? Uh, hmm. Everybody's like me. Everybody's got his price. They have right. to believe that. Right. Because if they don't, they're, uh, they're condemned by their own conscience. Right. right. Wow. What would you say, because um, I know you wrote this book very recently on how to destroy Western civilization and other, what is it, other ideas from the cultural abyss. And at the beginning of the other one of Ha, you say, uh, you say it wasn't making you happy writing that, that mm -hmm. book. Yeah, yeah. Although it made me very happy reading it, especially when we get to the chapter with the numeric chapter. Well, maybe the idea of happiness has been uh, overemphasized. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, uh, well, there's a great question. What do we mean by happiness? Yes. Well, what uh, the paragon of common sense Aristotle meant by happiness uh, eudaimonia is not a feeling, and it's not temporary, and it's not shallow, and it's not obvious. It's blessedness. It's fulfillment. What we would refer to as the beatific vision, in yes. a sense. And I suppose we spend a lot of our time sacrificing the beatific vision for the more obvious joys and happinesses around us. We can't avoid that. Uh, in a sense, there's no such thing as atheism. Everybody has to have something that's first, some sort of God. So it's a question of which God, rather than whether there is a God or not. I have a book on my shelf at home that uh, I got a few chapters into. I unfortunately, I've never finished it. It got fairly dense. It's by a, a late Jesuit priest by the name of Father Vincent Michelli. Uh, you may be familiar with it. It's called The Gods of Atheism. And it's a very, it's a very brilliant work. He, he starts with uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, and he comes up to pretty contemporary 1950s, 1960s thinkers who are all atheists. And he looks at their work and shows how each one of them is substituting something for God. So it's the gods of atheism, like 
you know, Karl Marx has the perfect utopian classless society, mm -hmm. and you know, Auguste Comte has got um, whatever his his idea was. Um, yeah. So, you, you, would you think that it's pretty much impossible for us to completely be atheists without substituting something, some kind of idol? If God created us in His image, uh, He created us to worship. Uh, and we can't erase that, so yeah. we have to worship something, and it's usually the absence, the uh, the lack of God, uh, or it's ourselves. That's uh, extremely popular lately. Uh, commencement addresses usually say you can be whatever you want to be, which is uh, an outright lie. In fact, it's the devil's lie. That's basically what the devil said to Eve. You know, you can you can be like God. That's what no, my teachers can. told me growing up: you can be anything you want. What a lie. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I want to be the Archangel Gabriel. Yeah. I want to watch the devil, okay? <laughs> we're, see, we're seeing a lot of that in our culture today of saying you can, you know, if, if it's what you think or feel, you can be that thing. Yeah. Well, the, the desire of our heart is the beatific vision, right? To see God face to face. But the scary thing is, if you make God anything other than who God actually is, you will see your God face to face for all eternity. Well, in some sense, right? This is true because the first words out of Jesus' mouth in John's Gospel are, what do you want? What do you seek? The assumption there is that uh, we will get what we want. This is, this is ultimate divine justice. If we want an alternative God, we'll get that. If we want the real God, we'll get it. I, uh, I think of uh, whenever I moved here to Louisville, I think it's a great town and I love living here, but I, I always tell people, you know, it's disordered, but I'm not going to name my hometown because I don't want to dash it. But it's disordered in a different way than my hometown is, you know, the top spot back home was something a little bit more ominous. Maybe maybe drugs in my hometown was number one and God was number two. I like Louisville because it seems like it's always the wrong thing. It's not God in that top spot, but it, it might be family. Um, it might be sports or something that needs to be two or three or four or five. But they put the wrong thing, the wrong emphasis. Uh, a good example is I always hear about this, about a high school um, uh, senior who had moved to a different school um, because he had seen a T-shirt in the, the gift shop that said, um, you know, what makes us proud of our school? Number one, excellence. Number two, God. <laughs> Number two. <laughs> Number two, God. What? It, what you say is true, but in a sense, the opposite is also true. Because if you if you worship something that's close to God, yeah. like family or yeah. religion or morality, uh, you're going to be stuck on that for a long time because that's a serious temptation. But if you worship something as stupid as drugs, yeah, uh, you're going to hit the bottom pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, God converts people who hit the bottom. Look yeah. at St. Paul. So do you yeah. think the, the things that are closer to God, the sort of the more subtle temptations are really the more dangerous in yeah. that sense? Yeah. Look, look at Jesus versus the Pharisees compared with Jesus versus the, uh, the murderers, the yeah. prostitutes, the rebels. Yeah. Yeah. He converted them and against the Pharisees yep. who were godly people yep. in, in that sense. It was you, you, you vipers, you snakes. They, yeah. they would not, uh, they, they wouldn't listen um, yeah, that's interesting. reminds me of that quote from St. Augustine uh, that people who are lost in their passions are less lost than those who have lost their passions. Yeah. And it's on some level where the subtle things that are good, but they shouldn't be number one, can have a tendency to make us think, well, I'm good. I'm, I'm living a healthy, uh, holy, pious life. 
when in truth we could end up worshiping devotionals. We could worship all kinds of really good things, but that is not God. And that can actually do worse for us. Whereas someone like you said, who's an addict completely consumed in certain things, they hit that rock bottom and it's going to wake them to their senses. Like the prodigal son, like where, where have I been my whole life? And I'm hungry still. I mean, hunger led him away. Hunger leads him back, and he finds himself in the Father's embrace, whereas his brother lived there the whole time and wouldn't come to the party. This is part of the answer to the most difficult uh, problem uh, philosophically that a, a believer in God has to face, namely the problem of evil. Why does God allow so much evil, yeah. so much misery, so much suffering? Uh, it's, a, it's a grace. It's a mercy. Because if we were totally happy and satisfied in our idols, uh, we'd be hopeless. So he gives us a good kick in the pants. <laughs> and I suppose, John, to, to your point about, you know, the addict or somebody who's in a very bad place in life, I think that th that person usually realizes they're not in a good place. Yeah. And the real danger is to think, well, I've got a good job, I've got a good family, I, I don't do anything really wrong, is to start feeling like you've, you're good right where you are and you don't need to go any further. You know, you just told me something I should have put in that book called How to Destroy Western Civilization. Uh, some people who read that book get the false impression that uh, I'm idealizing the past, mm -hmm. uh, the 50s, as a kind of a bubble of innocence, right. and demonizing the present as uh, getting more and more decadent. Well, there's something to that, but there's also something to the opposite. Uh, we're getting more desperate. We're getting more addicted to false gods, and, and, and they're... They're clearly not working. Right. So we're closer to hitting bottom. As a, as a society. And if we do, we might just bounce up in a way that we couldn't if we got stuck in the Laodicean middle where right. we're lukewarm. Right. Well, maybe that was why so many people in, in ancient pagan Rome were eager to convert. Yep. This is where I think John Paul II and his new springtime of evangelization might come into play here, where we could actually see greater conversions. In fact, I'm witnessing it more than I've ever done when I was younger, in the 90s, early on. But uh, my mom also brought a, a different perspective to the new springtime. She said, well, how did the, the early church start, John? It was a bloodbath of martyrdom. <laughs> yes. yep. And that yep. was the new springtime. So it's like... Oh, thanks, Mom. It's not just a bunch of people loving Jesus and coming back to the church. It's a lot of sacrifice and, and persecution. That we That's been true throughout history, and it remains true. Uh, there are an immense number of converts now in places where Christianity is, is uh, persecuted, in communist China, in, in Islamic countries, uh, in uh, very unhappy and corrupt regimes. Yeah. yeah. I've heard of... Uh, you know, missionaries coming from places, uh, I'm thinking specifically, I think Protestant missionaries in Korea going back to Wales to re-evangelize, you know, the Welsh people who had originally brought the gospel to them, but have, have completely, uh, have completely fallen off to, to one degree or the no another. You can just look at the statistics. Yeah. Um, it, it makes me think, I always think of the, the lukewarmness and, and it, it kind of goes back to what I said about Louisville here is that there is so much good. There's so many good things. The food is good. My house is really nice. You know, it's really warm. Um, and it's a lot easier here for me to, I don't know, just, you know, get, get swept up in that and just go by the day to day, just enjoy it. And that's a turning away from God in itself. 
I feel like that's it's it's weird how we're on both this very comfortable. It's like the days of Noah where they're mm. they're eating and drinking up until mm -hmm. the rain starts to fall. Yeah. Uh I, I almost feel as if we're there, but it, it is. It's just so comfortable. There's so there's so much. There it's still plentiful when I go to the store. There were good martinis on the deck of the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> yeah. I think we still haven't quite caught up to John Paul II's notion of the new evangelization because what's most new about it is not so much the means the technology, as the audience. We are the ones who need to evangelize ourselves. The new evangelization is in the church. Yeah. <clears throat> there's, there's this wonderful bunch of missionaries called Focus, uh, and they go, as most missionaries do, to the depths of degradation. What, 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 is, the, uh, what is the most desperate mission field? Catholic universities. <laughs> yeah. That tells you something. Oh, my. No, I am. Um, I wanted to circle back around to something you said a moment ago, because it's of great interest to me. You were talking about how we ask, why does God allow suffering, allow pain? And how the, this has universally been the number one argument against God, or maybe the number one existential question that humans ask. And it, kind of historically, Eric and I were talking about this on a podcast episode a few weeks ago, uh, a big fan of St. Thomas Aquinas. And I love the fact that in the Summa, when he starts talking about the existence of God, and he starts with the objection first, he proposes two arguments against the existence of God, and they are precisely the same and only two that I think yep. have ever been used, except that he frames them better than most, you know, he, he steel mans the position uh, better than most modern atheists do. But the most powerful of those is, of course, the argument from evil. And I feel like we do spend a lot of time trying to philosophically explain it, or perhaps explain it away. And, and kind of bear with me here, because it's hard to explain exactly what I mean by this. There is something we have to be very cautious about. We understand that maybe something seems light relative to something dark. But as Christians, we never want to say that God needs evil to make his goodness go, known, right? That would, be, that would be definitely heretical. And yet, the allowing of pain, suffering, and evil brings out virtues in us we could not have known otherwise. And I think it, it brings out attributes of God we wouldn't have known otherwise, including what is frequently considered the greatest, which is mercy. Mm -hmm. I... Um, I was reading a book the other day, and it had a quote in it from St. Thomas's commentary on Hebrews, and he speaks of a sacrament as being something secret and sacred, and he talks about how the most secret things are those in the heart of man, the mm -hmm. most unknown things, and he transfers that idea to God, so the most sacred, secret thing is the heart of God. Christ reveals that to us, right? So Christ is the ultimate sacrament. And yet, Christ came to save us, to show us mercy. So he refers the incarnation as the sacrament of mercy. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard that before. Mm -hmm. um, in Thomas's style, it's very logical, of course. But really beautiful is that somehow it feels like we got to see more of the depth of the heart of God because of suffering. Could you speak to that for a bit? Well, to quote Aquinas himself, 
There's only one possible reason why God allows the depth of suffering that he does. Uh, suffering that we can't explain that apparently does no good whatsoever. Mm. Uh, he does everything that he does for one very simple motive, his love. So Aquinas' words are something like this. God, he quotes Augustine on this, word for word. God, who is infinitely wise and infinitely powerful, would never allow any evil to creep into any of his works unless his power and his wisdom were such as to be able to bring out an even greater good from that evil. It's truly evil. Now, take, 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 take the, the most difficult thing to explain, the Holocaust. Right. Perhaps one of the most spectacularly evil events in human history. Uh, God could have undone that by simply sending a thunderbolt into Hitler's brain in 1932 before he got elected. Right. He could have done it. He didn't. Why not? I've talked to a number of people who uh, uh, are or know Holocaust survivors uh, and read a bit of literature about it. And uh, it doesn't look as if Thomas Aquinas' answer works because... Although the Holocaust did make some people saints, it didn't make them all saints. And right. most of them lost their faith and didn't get it back or were just uh, suppressed and, and bummed out and, and, and in, into despair. It doesn't look as if we have any empirical data that, uh, that justify God. And then I remember reading the book of Job, and God finally answers Job, when we, all are, we all are all Job, and we want to know. Yeah. And God doesn't give Job an answer to any one of his questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he says, basically, uh, I'm going to answer two questions. I'm going to answer the questions you should have asked. Who are you, and who am I? Yeah. And Job's answer to God is, now I know who you are. And now I know who I am. I'm the man with empty-headed words. I'm a fool. I'm a little baby. I can't understand you. I have to look up into your loving arms, into your face, and simply trust you like a little baby. And he and Job says at the end, I had heard of you with the hearing, hearing of, the of the ear, ear but now, now my I eyes see, see you. you. Yes. And isn't that alone, at least in our personal lives, worth the suffering if we've gone from hearing or knowing about God to actually seeing God? That's the beatific vision. And if yeah. that's not worth anything, nothing's worth anything. And, you know, I've experienced this viscerally with young people like in youth ministry in our parishes. That For years, Catholic education has always been focused, it seems, on teaching kids about Jesus about the history of Christianity and not focused on teaching and showing young people how to meet Jesus, actually get to know him, not to know about him. And it used to be, sadly, and I feel like the lack of Catholic authentic education uh, in the world has led to this, but on some level, 20 years ago, you might have asked a young person, you know, would you like to have a relationship with Jesus? And they might have said, well, who's Jesus? Now it seems when you ask someone, would you like to have a relationship with Jesus? They say, what's a relationship? Yeah. And we're, we're facing a totally different world yeah. of people who literally have no concept of what it means to love, to give, to receive, yeah. to be attentive to one another and meet people's basic needs. Well, when Jesus himself in John's gospel, chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, uh, defines uh, heaven or beatitude or eternal life, he says, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God. He doesn't say to know about you, mm. just to mm. know you. And the English language can't quite translate that right, because in most languages, there's two different 
words for knowledge. One is the knowledge of a person, and the other is the knowledge of a, an impersonal fact. Kennen and Wissen in German, connaître and savoir in, Fran in French. Mm. So the beatific vision is to know God, not just to know about him. I'm sure the devil is a great theologian. There's a, there's a well, line yeah, he's in got James, a lot about James <laughs> Epistle. He yeah. says, do, do, you know that there, do you believe that there is one God? Ooh, good for you. The devil knows that too. Yeah. Yeah. He shakes with fear. <laughs> so it's like, in, it, and I mean this more in the kind of classical uh, traditional Latin way, intuitive knowledge versus discursive knowledge, right? That direct apprehension of yeah. that, that contact with the thing known. The Catechism quotes that the wonderful line from the Corée de Ars. He uh, discovered this old peasant who was uh, very pious and very happy, sitting alone silently in church for hours, just praying. And he said, what, what do you do when you pray? And the peasant said, I just look at him and he just looks at me. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. And interesting on that point, too, that the, the Bible uses the word know for the relationship between a man and a wife. Yes. And a deep kind of knowledge from which springs forth new life. You, you mentioned a moment ago, and I really like this, that in the, in the book of Job, God doesn't answer Job's questions. And staying for a moment with this, this idea of, of evil, of pain, of suffering, we are, as humans, naturally always looking for answers. And I can think of times in, in my life where I've had... Frustrations, annoyances, compared to other people's lives, they probably weren't very great. I thought they were sufferings. Yep. And I wanted to be able to make a formula out of it. Well, maybe God's letting this happen, so I'll develop patience, right? Or something like that. And then there was moments where it seemed so much more than that, like just sort of overwhelming, you know, some bout with depression or something, and, and things seemed just dreadful, where I couldn't figure out a reason. Like, why, why do I have to go through this? But I begin to believe that it is when we can't answer it with some reasonable, this bad thing happened to me because somebody did this, or it, it happened to me because maybe my own stupid mistakes, or it happened to me because God's teaching me a lesson. You know, when we can't answer those questions anymore, then it just has to become Jesus, I trust in you. And then yeah. you start to get to know God a yeah. little bit. Yeah, yeah. If God had answered Job in ways that would have satisfied Job more, uh, Job certainly would have looked at those answers and said, thank you very much, God. Now I've got a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. Do you have a couple more answers? And uh, then Job would say the same thing to those answers, and it would go on forever and ever. It would never end. Do you think a lot of our, of our modern... Um, I, I, no, I, I think this is true like with, with atheism, because this has kind of been where all this conversation has gone. But I think maybe it's true with Christians as well. Do you think a lot of our modern... Um, attempts to define what God should and shouldn't do, this idea of justice, is really based on a very small view of God. Certainly. Uh, like God shouldn't allow suffering, you know, it's not nice. Even the pagans knew justice better than that. Uh, if you look at Plato, uh, he connects justice with music and astronomy. Interesting. Wow. The stars are just and musical notes are just. Because they are it's right. Like, it's, yes, yes. Uh, justice is predictable. God is not predictable. Because God is love, and love is more than justice. Mm -hmm. If we got justice, what a terrible thing that would be. Yeah. Who would have any hope? Yeah. It makes me think uh, there were the sisters who would pray for, you know, we, we think of the divine mercy now and that devotion and, and, and sisters who have a devotion to the divine mercy. There was a time, I believe, that I'd read about sisters who were uh, devoted to the divine wrath. 
and they the would pray. Yeah, they Christ. would pray for the divine wrath, and <laughs> they would find them dead in all these these very twisted uh, these twisted ways. Well, you know, there's even a right way of being devoted to the divine wrath. Uh, in the revelations of Julian of Norwich, uh, she asks God, I know you are perfect love, but your Bible says that there is wrath. Please show me your wrath. Yeah. And she says, God showed me his wrath. Uh, and there was no wrath on God's part. The wrath was on our part. Wow. Well, that, that goes to the idea of divine simplicity, because God is utterly unchangeable. So everything we see in the Bible that speaks of changes of human emotions, all these kind of things, is really our relationship to God. You know, if you think of the sun, if, uh, you know, when it gets to be nighttime, it's not because the sun went dark, it's because the world has, has turned. Mm -hmm. So God just is, he is perfect being. Mm -hmm. And if we're in the right relationship with that, well, then we have the beatific vision. If we're on the, if we're in the wrong relationship with that, it comes across as justice. Right. So to go on, on top of that with the Old Testament, you have so many examples of God's wrath, it seems, mm. right? And so a lot of people look at the Old Testament as God kills people, God smites people, God does this, and he's a he's an evil God. And that gets some people thinking that the God of the New Testament is somehow a different God entirely. So <laughs> how would you explain why it seems God is smiting people or doing all these things in the Old Testament? Uh, why would he be ex written out because, to be like that? Because God, being love, wants us to have perfect happiness and wants to give us a gift that is perfect. And he can't do that because uh, we are in a mess. We are in garbage, and he has to first take out the garbage. And that's his wrath. If you want to cook a meal and there's a lot of garbage in the room, you first need a garbage man. And that's why he sends Jesus. Jesus is the garbage man. He takes away our sins. Mm. That's a good. Actually, takes them away. Doesn't just just take away our punishment. Takes away our sins. Sanctifies us, not just justifies us. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about that quite a bit recently because I'm I'm a convert. I came from a Protestant background, and this is, of course, one of the very key distinguishing aspects of soteriology is penal substitution. Right, the idea that well, the punishment got taken away, versus no, God actually wants us to be holy. That, Not just call holy, but be holy. Really transformed. great Scotch Presbyterian Protestant preacher, George MacDonald, whom C.S. Lewis loved so much, yeah. Uh, yeah. said uh, the idea that uh, Jesus is a savior from our punishment for sins is a low, mean, selfish notion. Yeah. He was named Jesus not because he would take away our punishment merely, because he would take away our sins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, you said something that, uh, i trying to remember where I was going with this. Well, it, it yeah, speaks you, you to the, the original false Protestant theology, I think, that Martin Luther came up with, the idea that human beings are by nature dung and Christ is covering us with snow, when in truth, I think that it's the exact opposite. As right? if God is lying to himself. There's no dung under that snow, but there is. Yeah. That's yeah, ridiculous. That's, yeah, that's what really bothers me about that is you, there's this idea of kind of God looking at us through Christ and declaring us righteous, and it's like, okay, even so, God knows all things. It's like he's closing one eye and saying, yeah, you're, you look good to me. No, you can't fool God. Yeah. And, and one of the other things that has often occurred to me about this is, I think if we have that view of salvation, we also forget about what happens in heaven. Because nothing, the Bible says that nothing evil can stand in the presence of God. Mm. 
it's not just about God's not smiting us with lightning bolts right now because he's looking at us through his son and doesn't see the bad mm -hmm. stuff. There is no possible way that we could step into the presence of Almighty God with sin and also the fact that because sin is in opposition to God, we wouldn't want to. No, no. That's why purgatory is, is although very painful, at the same time very joyful. We mm. want that. We yeah. want the truth, even though it hurts. Yes. And, and divine wrath being we enact our own wrath and God allows us to, that's really the definition of hell. We choose to go there. He yeah. doesn't send anyone to hell. We yeah. reject his mercy, reject the very notion of sin, and, and create our own God, essentially, that we... I mean, it's utter emptiness. I couldn't imagine. I'm an ex-Calvinist, and not all Calvinists believe that, but many Calvinists believe in a double predestination, that God wants some people to be in hell. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible heresy. Yeah. What kind of a God would, 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 would you want to worship if... If he loved half the human race and hated the other half of it. Right, he created some chest to send him to hell. Like yeah. that's and a guy uh, burning ants on an anthill. And also the real challenge within that system to really have assurance that you are one of the uh, one of the predestined. So you might just be going around thinking, it's possible that God hates me and wants me to go to hell and I can't do anything about it. You know, mm -hmm. what a psychologically, what a dreadful state to be in. Yeah. But I remembered what I was thinking a moment ago, uh, back to John's question about why does God appear a certain way in the Old Testament? Um, I think we do have this idea of the God of the Old Testament being the wrathful, vengeful God and the God of the New Testament, Jesus loving and merciful. I remember hearing some interviewer debate a couple of years ago in which this was brought up. And the person responded very well with, if you look at the New Testament, the harshest language in the Bible is reserved for the New Testament. Because the worst that happens in the Old Testament is people get killed. But Jesus is the one that talks about the lake of fire, the weeping and gnashing and uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness. He's the one that gets uses some of the most harsh language, and we apparently just completely overlook that and go for just the merciful bits. I wish I could remember which scholar wrote this, but I remember reading that some scholar uh, made a list of all the references in the Old Testament to the wrath of God and all the references in the Old Testament to the mercy of God and found out that the mercy references outnumbered the wrath references 17 to 1. Then he did the same thing in the New wow. Testament and got the same figures. Wow. And then, surprisingly, he did the same thing with the Quran and got the same figures. Wow. wow. That's unexpected. That is amazing. Yeah. That is it, really amazing. to me, speaks to the human capacity to hyper-focus on the negative. Yep. And that's really what it is. It's our perception that it's more negative than positive yeah. or, or hopeful, right? Gosh, that's so intense. Have you ever read any uh, Michael O'Brien's novels? All of them. I yeah. love Michael O'Brien's novels. And I, I love Michael O'Brien. He is, he is the greatest living Catholic novelist by, yeah. by far. I first, I'd heard of him for a while. I first discovered him uh, maybe two years ago. And the first book I read was Father Elijah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I bring this up because it fits into the, the whole topic of when pain and suffering, we don't understand it, but how it transforms us. And since you're a fan of his books, I'm sure you remember the scene. It's getting towards the end. And it's when Father Elijah has the Elijah experience. He actually spends 40 days out in the desert, right? You know, and he, uh, he's got the boy who turns out to be, is it uh, Gabriel or Raphael, somebody who's kind of following him and assisting him. But there's this moment where 
He is in utter darkness, inside, outside. He's walking along the edge of a deep ravine or valley, and he's utterly hopeless. In fact, there's a comment even made that he is a well-educated man, could have explained like to any atheist why God allows evil and suffering, but this has now gone beyond the intellect and his own experience, right? So he's without answers. He's on the brink of despair. And he contemplates suicide. He contemplates throwing himself over the edge of the mountain. But he knows, well, that's a mortal sin. I can't do that. So he starts thinking of walking close to the edge. So maybe he'll have an accident and accidentally fall over and die. (laughs) Anyway, at some point, I don't quite remember, but uh, I, I think he strikes his head against a rock, goes unconscious. And when he wakes up, the angel is there, just like in the story of Elijah with the little cakes of bread where in the Bible he tells Elijah to eat for strength, for you have a long journey ahead of you. And as they converse, Father Elijah is just completely defeated at this point, and he says something to the effect of, I just don't know anything anymore. And the angel says, good, now we can begin. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That is my favorite line from the book. Um, And I think I read it, around or shortly after a point where I had gone through some fairly intense internal suffering that I couldn't make sense of. Mm. And there was something so beautiful about that of, good, now we can begin. That's the profoundest level of what Socrates is doing. Uh, The first half of the Socratic dialogue, like the wrath of God, is always a refutation of uh, respectable ordinary opinions. Mm. And... Socrates very rarely preaches. He very rarely teaches you what to believe. He spends most of his time saying, this won't work, that won't work. Yeah. Right. And then once his interlocutor accepts that, then he begins, but only then. Yeah. Which is probably why he's such a gadfly and uh, <laughs> makes everyone angry and oh, yeah. not polite company to yes. keep around. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like the Euthyphro dilemma, uh, he doesn't really even answer the problem at the end no. of it, does he? Yeah. No, he doesn't. Do you think that's because he didn't know the answer or he wanted us to think about it? Of course it, he didn't know the answer. <laughs> he really none can't of us, until none of us divine knows. revelation. None, well, Socrates was a, a <coughs> wonderfully pious agnostic. Yeah. And he knew that he did not know. Yeah. And he knew that God could not be Zeus or Apollo or any of the Greek gods. Right. And he knew that atheism was wrong. And that's all he knew. And he knew that that was all he knew. And therefore he didn't try to go beyond that. Because it seems very early on, the Christian thinkers, I think Augustine and others, are very quick to be able to explain the Euthyphro dilemma, you know, based mm-hmm. around the, the nature great. of God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that is interesting to me that he was fine with questioning, even if you had to leave questions open at the, at the very end. You like Socrates a lot, don't you? I do. He's in the back of my mind. I can't get him out. Yeah. I... I love the fact that you've written a number of the Socratic dialogue books. Um, I've, I found one um, recently a used copy of Socrates meets uh, or talks with uh, Machiavelli, and I just started actually reading it a couple of days ago. But I remember reading or hearing somewhere in an interview you commenting about why, how you don't know why dialogue is not used more by mm. thinkers. Yeah. Um, yeah, why, it talked that a little bit. Why do you think that's such a, a great tool? I still don't know the answer to why everybody else doesn't uh, imitate it, because it works. Yeah. Uh, God himself is more than monologue. He's trialogue, which is a step up from dialogue. So we get closest to him by dialogue. That's good. That's true. And well, that that trialogue, I mean, to me, speaks to 
just human community, right? We oftentimes think that we image God in our solitude, right? With our intellect and our, our prayer life. And there's truth in that because we will die and we will have to face God alone on some level. But we also exist in community and there's that a conversation or rather what I think they call it the great conversation that I feel like we're very much a part of right now on some level. And You know how the Bible defines the image of God? The first time it appears in Genesis, the image of God is male and female. Mm-hmm. The great conversation. Yes. Yeah. And that is perhaps one of the hardest conversations because to get men and women to understand one another on a deep level, I think, is is uh, one of the greatest uh, efforts in human society, perhaps. Just think, God didn't have to do that. He could have made us like angels. And that would have solved so many problems and made life so much simpler and easier. And he didn't. Yeah. And look, look at all the misunderstandings, look at all the, the, the violence, look at all the, uh, the perversions that come from, from that invention of God's. It's, it's, almost, like the, it's like the, almost like the invention of free will. He could have made us uh, happy animals and we'd be in the Garden of Eden forever and there'd be no problems. Right. But, but instead he made this crazy mess. Yeah. But right Thank God he made yeah. this crazy mess at us. Yes, and it's terrifying, but it's beautiful. Uh, you yes. know, you did, uh, you did a series I saw uh, at the Theology of the Body Institute because I've, I've gone through the certification program with them and it's been a great gift. And uh, Bill Donahue there at the Institute shared... Uh, clips from the Humanum series. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you uh, remember yep. doing this. And um, there was one scene that really connected with me that you said uh, that was very transformative in my life. And and uh, it was just the masculinity and femininity built into, uh, into all of creation. Mm-hmm. Would you be, perhaps speak to that on some level, like how that fits in and our well, understanding? Almost inevitably, we moderns think that the ancient view that there is yin and yang, masculine and feminine, a kind of a cosmic uh, dialogue uh, between receptivity and activity is a projection of human sexuality, which is our typically modern explanation of why almost all languages except English have gendered nouns. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the opposite. Uh, we reflect the universe rather than the universe reflecting us. Or rather, both we and the universe reflect God, who is himself not just one person, but a a love relationship among persons. And that relationship between the Father and the Son is so perfect that it eternally becomes the third person, love itself. So since, since God is perfect being, everything that has being is in some way in his image, maybe... uh, Man made in the image of God is more perfect than, say, a rock or a flower. But I suppose with that line of thought, we can say that in some way the image of God is reflected in everything that has yeah. been made. So yeah. maybe it's not surprising that we see yeah. that in the, in the universe and nature. Well, I remember reading a, um, I think this is in uh, a book by a man named Valadares called Against All Hope. He was a prisoner in uh, Castro's Cuba. Okay. I think he was a Baptist minister. And uh, like most tyrants, uh, Castro and his ilk wanted to conquer his mind as well as his body. Right. Uh, and he couldn't do it. He, he was too strong. Uh, and his strength came from the fact that he was in communication with the other prisoners by secret means. And they found him out and took them all away and isolated him totally. Uh, and he made friends with a little spider 
in his cell, the only life form possible, and tamed the spider. And when they discovered that, they killed the spider. Wow. And he wrote that that, that almost got me. That almost got me insane. Uh, and at the last moment, uh, just as I was on the brink of uh, uh, despair, uh, a loose little stone fell from the wet ceiling uh, at my feet. Uh, and I looked at that stone and I said to it, God is there too. That's mm. God's stone. So he said, I, I kept up the dialogue and eventually he got rescued. But he, wow. he credits the existence of God in that stone as uh, saving his sanity. That is, that is beautiful and yeah, profound. That's profound. So going back to this idea of the image of God in male and female, in man and woman, and you said God could have made us as angels, which don't seem to need that relationship with each other. You know, I think we, we always sort of see the angels as a higher tier of being because they're perfect spirit and, and all of that. Um, but do you think it would be accurate to say that the image of God is in some way more fully reflected in humanity? Relationally, Yes. Yeah. Uh, the angels have uh, an intellect far greater than ours sure. and a more powerful will. Right. But they don't have the, the completeness of the love relationship with each other. So it's hard their, to say one's greater their, than the other, just different? Well, their relationship is vertical. Mm -hmm. each, each angel, being a separate species, is superior to every other angel. And we have a kind of strange equality that is an equality of, of radical difference that the angels don't have. And that makes the love that humans have for each other in some way superior to the love that angels have for each other. Although when you factor God into it, the angels are, of course, closer to God, more godlike than we are. Yeah. Is that why the devil seems to always prefer to attack the family, sexuality? And, of course. Yeah. Yes. Of course. And he's getting smart now. Yeah. He's, uh, he's getting us at our weakest point. And he is also realizing that uh, persecution doesn't work. It uh, just makes more of us, like yeah. killing cockroaches. They just multiply. <laughs> you know, Catholics are like cockroaches. They used to be anyway. They used to have kids. Yeah. Uh, and now he realizes that uh, uh, the thing to do is uh, to, uh, to allow them a little comfortable religion, which will be like, uh, uh, well, it's like, uh, like the medicine you use against a pandemic. Uh, uh, it's like uh, cowpox, which is a mild version of smallpox, which prevents you from getting the real thing. So inoculating you. Yeah, in inoculation, yeah. He, he likes a little bit of religion. Yeah. And that's working well. You know, I suppose, I mean, obviously this really, this is a big contemporary conversation right now when we think of things like transgenderism and identification and you know, all the, the pronouns and so forth, that... This is really hitting at the very core of what it means to mm -hmm. be human, mm -hmm. uh, about, as, about as deep as one can possibly and go. And our response to that has to be double. It has to be, on the one hand, an absolute intolerance for that demonic lie, and secondly, an absolute tolerance and love for the people that are victimized by that yeah. lie. Yeah. It's very difficult to do both of those, to be tough and tender at the same time. Because you want that divine image in the human to be redeemed. That's the whole point. Otherwise, just saying we don't like or agree with something is not really doing any or good. Even, even simply to say that's not true, yeah. and I'm on the, on the side of truth, yes, but you also have to be on the side of persons. Yes. Yeah. Right, because you have to bring, you speak the truth with love. And I was listening to a talk by Jason Everett recently about gender, and he was saying there's got to be a way 
for love and truth be able to get a beer together. Yes. You know, how do we do that? Otherwise, the two absolutes contradict each other. Right. You can't compromise either one, ever. Right. And when it comes to gender, it, it, it's so visceral, so volatile. Like, some, all of us have family members that we know, friends that we know that are, that are experiencing these uh, uh, dysphoric uh, phenomenon yep. that didn't seem to exist 20 years yep. ago. And, I mean, you can always try to pick one thing to explain why this is happening. Um, but I feel obviously it's a combination of things, but how do we, how do we accompany people in ways that are loving and tender, but when do you share the truth? When do you say the obvious reality of what is actually going on? I don't think there is any one clear and universal answer to that question. I think we have to find our way. Uh, there's nothing like a science and technology in the realm of the spirit. There's no spiritual technology. There's no, no owner's manual for, for the human soul. No button pushing. No computer and logic. E and each individual is different. I had read a scholarly article uh, about um, someone who had gone through and, and had had, you know, um, a transgender person, their boss at work, had never spoken to them about it. Um, but had just been a good boss to them. And then there was like the day before they were supposed to go in for an operation. Um, the, and they were an anomaly in this, this, this scholarly article because of their relationship with this, with this good boss is what I'll call it. The day before the operation, uh, the boss said, hey, before you do that, why don't you come to my house and we talk about it? Or um, I think there was some sort of prayer service that, that he may have taken them to. And they were the only ones out of like a hundred people to recant. Um, but, and I mean, it was the day before uh, the operation. And I think it does speak to, to that relationship. Um, you do hear a lot of answers on what the truth is. Uh, and I may, I've asked the question to others before and it, it got turned back around. Well, what's wrong or something. Mm -hmm. But when you have people in your life and people that you love, especially, uh, it's so difficult to, to have these conversations and even lesser conversations uh, of truth with someone who may not be doing something you agree with or may not be in line with your morals. And how do you express, um, you know, what you believe in a charitable manner where it doesn't feel like, you know, you're, you're at the gate, that you're attacking them. Um, I just, it's just, it's just so hard. Uh, any advice there? I'm not a psychologist, so I can't detail the answers to how you do it. Yeah. But that you do it is the most important thing. People sense love, mm. even if they disagree with you. If you love them and that comes through, uh, something in them has to respond to that. You can't, you can't argue with love. Yeah. There, yeah. There's no refutation of love. Yeah. Uh, I think the... Greatest piece of fiction about Jesus, very difficult to write Jesus fiction, is The Grand Inquisitor by Dostoevsky. Yeah. And in that story, when the Inquisitor, who is brilliant, refutes Jesus, Jesus doesn't answer him, not a word. He kisses him. Yeah. And this tough guy Gosh. is so shattered by that <laughs> that he trembles. Yeah. And he has, he has captured Christ and is about to re-crucify him. And he says, go away. I can't stand your presence. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Love is the most powerful force in the world. And Christ is the ultimate. You spoke about the need for truth and love to be combined in this. 
Christ is a perfect example of this because he is perfectly true. He is God. He is perfectly love. Isn't There's a verse uh, somewhere in the Psalms. I'm not going to get this quite right, but it talks about um, truth and mercy and justice and peace. Meeting kissing or kissing. Yeah. yeah. That and, was that was the verse that Thomas Aquinas chose to uh, preach on at his, uh, I forget, either ordination or uh, final vows or something like that. It's a brilliant sermon. Yeah. I, there's uh, somewhere in that or, or similar verse that talks about uh, justice springing up from earth. And I feel and, like that has to be And righteousness coming down from heaven. The way they can be, be reconciled the horizontally between truth and justice is that both have to come uh, from the earth as well as from heaven, thus the incarnation. Because we can't. So it's like it's not about justice coming down from heaven. It's like apparently there's going to be justness, righteousness on earth that's coming coming up, if I remember that correctly. And that can only be explained by the incarnation because yeah. we, we can't do it. Right. Right. Um, one quick little thought, total sidetrack, I just wanted to share. And then this might be a, about due for a short break and more water or coffee or whatever we need. But um, you mentioned something earlier about dialogues and God being a trialogue. And I know that you are a fan of humor and jokes. These guys know that I have a terrible uh, addiction to puns and awful jokes, so you may hate this, but it popped God in my head. God has an addiction to puns, too. <laughs> Good. Thank you. I'm okay, then. I had to share this because it popped in my head when you said that. Um, you, probably, you may know it already, but a, a man is in a forest. He's about to chop down a tree, and the tree says, wait, please don't cut me down. The man takes another swing with the axe. The tree says, what are you doing? Stop. I'm a talking tree. The man says, yes, and you will dialogue. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so now that I have totally brought us back down there, <laughs> I don't think that would fit in with that book. Christian philosophy. Oh, I no, 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 the second one. Oh, the second one, How to dis <laughs> Destroy Western Civilization. It might that, fit into that, that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you, if you want to be sad, read well, How to Destroy Western Civilization. If you want to be happy, read Ha. Which is why I was sad. When how you read that title, you should have read it when you started this whole episode with ha. Yes, you know, yeah, instead of ha. Working that a little bit. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, let's take a very short break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with more with Dr. Peter Kraft on Spirit and Spire. Hey everyone, this week's episode is sponsored by Family Renewal Project. FRP is a local theology of the body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They're dedicated to renewing the culture through the renewal of the family. They have so many amazing things going on, so check them out at familyrenewalproject.com. Welcome back to Spirit Inspire. We've been talking with Dr. Peter Kraft today. And uh, just a couple of things before we get back into our discussion. I wanted to say a couple of thank yous because kind of a little behind the scenes here, we usually record this podcast at the Cathedral of the Assumption in downtown Louisville. And a friend of the three of ours, Michael Schultz, tomorrow is being ordained as a deacon as part of his journey to the priesthood. And we found out last week, as some of the preparations for all of that, that the space we usually record in was going to be unavailable for today. So uh, Father Jonathan Erdman here at St. Francis of Assisi came through for us in a big way and gave us the use of this room today. So uh, John, and thank you too, got bright and early in the morning. Did, a, did well, a, I, I interviewed Michael. Interviewed Michael this morning around 7.30 this morning. Yeah, and then afterward we took down and brought Packed up all the equipment, brought it over here. We set it up uh, late, late morning to early afternoon today. So I just want to say a, 
a very big and very heartfelt thank you to Father Jonathan Erdman and St. Francis for making this happen. And also, um, he's not here presently, but Justin Fout. So I uh, mentioned earlier that you're doing the talk tonight at Immaculata. And Justin, dear friend, is the principal of Immaculata. And he's the guy that really did all the hard work of scheduling, communication, the flight, driving to the airport, all of that. So um, thank you, Justin, as well, when you watch this. And if you haven't checked out Immaculata, wonderful, good, solid uh, Catholic school here in, in Louisville. So, well, um, Dr. Kraft, we could ask you questions all day long. I've really been enjoying this. But maybe before we get into some more questions, I know you've had a few books come out this year. Do you have any current projects, books, anything that you're working on at the moment? I always do. Uh, one book that's coming out soon is uh, Every Word in the Lord's Prayer, a commentary. Uh, another one is called God on Stage. It's about uh, religious plays. Okay. Ones. Uh, and let's see, what am I working on right now? Sometimes I forget. I'm very absent-minded. Uh, this is planet Earth, isn't it? I'm not sure sometimes. <laughs> uh, sometimes it doesn't look like that it. That sounds like a good title of a book as well. Right? Yes. <laughs> I'm working on an introduction to philosophy for beginners by Socratic Dialogue. Nice. So Socrates is still there in the back of my brain. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I'll have to read that. I have... A passionate interest in philosophy, but it's very much at the amateur level and good beginning books to get amateur the big picture. Amateur philosophers are usually much healthier-minded people than professional philosophers. So remain an amateur. <laughs> yes, there you go. Well, yes. well I was going to say, speaking of which, um, I recently read uh, The Greatest Philosopher Who Ever Lived. I won't give it away, even though it does give it away in the first couple of pages. Mm. Um, but really, what stood out to me in, in that book is... There's a section you had on silence. It was very short, um, but it says that, you know, silence isn't the absence of speech, but silence is an entire world. And I think before we took the break, we were talking about, you know, some of the noisiness and messiness and craziness of the world. Um, and I just wanted if you could talk a little bit about, about silence. Um, a very little bit. Yeah. <laughs> the most precious thing in life and the meaning of life is love. And the supreme expression of love is not words but silence. When lovers look at each other, uh, words are not necessary. And that's the beatific vision. Yeah. This is why you don't need books in heaven. the truth we're trying to learn from books is going back to an earlier part of our conversation. It's not learning about God. It's knowing God. The truth we turn to books for is there in a person. Well, the two are connected. Mm -hmm. uh, Christ, who is the word of God in the singular, eternally spoke quite a few words yeah. uh, and said more in those few words. They could be all put on one side of a page of a newspaper than the rest of humanity said in trillions of words. Yeah. A little book I started reading a while back on um, Lectio Divina, and the author used this wonderful word. He might have coined it himself, but he was speaking about the incarnation of the Word of God, and he was talking about how the Scriptures, through through prayer meditation, we can really encounter God, encounter Christ, are certainly something higher. They're of a higher level than just ordinary books. 
Um, there is a real encounter with God. It's not still at the same level as the incarnation, like we would meet Christ in the Eucharist. And so he had created, I, I think maybe coined the term, inverbation, the uh, sort of like incarnation of the word in the book. I thought it was very, very nice. I like that. Yes, especially since it's a verb and not just a noun. Not just a static thing, but a, a deed, an act. That's something that has struck me about Thomas Aquinas and his notion of being is that being is an act. Yes. Most philosophers don't get that. They think of existence as a fact, but it's not. It's an act. It's dynamic. Well, I think we also think that if something is an act, it has to be very busy moving around. Whereas God, there is no motion per se in that sense, and yet he is the supreme act of being. This is why God doesn't have to fall in love. He is love. Hmm. That's a wonderful thought. How would you relate that reality of it being an act, not just a fact, to Rene Descartes' concept of I think, therefore I am? Because obviously we know that Cartesian worldview is what oftentimes devolves to I think, therefore I am, whatever I think I am, right? And so how do you move from uh, being to thought where it's I actually, I am, therefore I think, but it's still an act, not a fact? Well, Descartes was a genius, and as far as anybody knows, he was a believing Catholic. But uh, in making the human I am the source of all philosophical wisdom, he's usurping the divine I am, which is in fact the source of all wisdom. And when, when Moses asks for his name, God doesn't give him his name. He says, I am, and then he doesn't fill in the blank. Which Aquinas interprets quite profoundly as I am pure unlimited existence without the finitization of an essence. Therefore, I will not give you my name. My name is the one who has no name. And all pious Jews refuse to pronounce the name of God, the sacred four consonant word. It's interesting about that. Um, what we typically translate as Yahweh or Yahweh is an attempt to fill in the blanks, but it's not clear that that's actually accurate. Right. Nobody knows. Because after the destruction of the temple, that was lost. There was a time when the Jews knew the actual name, they just wouldn't write it. And the time frame there fascinates me because Christ is God, right? The name of, uh, that is above every other name is the name of Jesus. I read something else recently too, um, that if you kind of put yourself in an Old Testament Jewish perspective, some of the things we read in the New Testament about the greatness of the name of Christ are, are clear, clearly attributing divinity to Christ. Um, but how fascinating that the knowledge of the, the true knowledge of the name of God disappears almost identically to the point in time where the name of Jesus appears on the historical horizon. Yes, yes. Because that is the name of God, the name of God for us as, as God's Savior. And that name was heard and pronounced only in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So that when the temple was destroyed right. in 70 AD, the name was forgotten. Right. Yeah, only the high priest could say it, right, yep. on uh, Yom yep. Kippur. Yep. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Names are so important, I think, for the human person. And, I mean, obviously the name of Jesus is the greatest name above all, but if we're to be images of God in some way, our names become, I mean, obviously the first gift we receive is the very gift of life, but I think the second gift we oftentimes receive is our name, mm -hmm. and there's something to that. It's very intertwined. Our names are important. Well, you know, I believe that still today, Orthodox Jews will not name their baby without prayer. God, what is, what is the right name for this baby? Because in your name is your destiny. 
And ink yeah. is not just a label. It's not arbitrary. A little story about that. So my wife and I, um, when we had our fifth child, Patrick, we were at the hospital and uh, after he was born, so I should preface this by saying a year or two before this, a, a dear childhood friend of mine, uh, not well, friend of mine when I was in my teens, not like early childhood, he had married another one of my childhood friends and they had several children. He's a wonderful person. And uh, they had several daughters. They were expecting their first son. And he was on his way to work. And a uh, 19-year-old kid, good kid from all accounts, early in the morning out in the country, didn't think anybody would be around, was driving his truck too fast and took him out. Mm. And this was maybe uh, a few weeks or a month before his wife was due to give, give birth. So, you know, the children had no father. Now it's a very tragic situation. And uh, his name was Wade, and he just he meant a lot to me. So my wife and I are in the hospital, and we, we have our baby, Patrick. And we wanted to do the classic four names, and we had gotten Patrick Michael. We liked that, Patrick Michael. And we were thinking of a third name. And if memory serves me correctly, I believe we decided on Patrick Michael Xavier. And the nurses come into the room for my wife to fill out various forms, including the name of the child. And my wife realizes somehow in our hurry to get to the hospital, we'd forgotten to bring a newborn onesie. So she asked if I would drive to the town, it was a little country town over in Indiana, and would I go and um, you know find a little store and go buy a newborn outfit? So I said, sure. I drove over there, took a few minutes all the way around. So I would have anticipated she would probably have been done filling out that form. And we had just agreed to Patrick Michael Xavier. And for some reason on the way driving back, I thought, my friend Wade, and I thought how I would love to pay a little tribute to him. Patrick Michael Wade. That's got a good ring to it, I thought. I like this. Mm -hmm. I like this. Well, it's too late. She'll have filled out the form. And so I went in the hospital. It was up on the third floor. I went and I walked in the room, and she had the forms in front of her. She filled out everything else. She had her pen ready to write the name and hadn't written it yet. And I said, hold on a second. What do you think about Patrick Michael Wade? And she knew the whole story, and she said, absolutely. So he wrote it down. The doctor comes in a little bit later and says, well, so what do you name the baby? And we told him, and we did not realize this. We had no idea. He was the doctor that delivered Wade's son after his death. Oh, my. What a profound moment of the way you know, the God works. The angels play things. great chess, don't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah. All the pawns are on the right squares. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh my wife and I ran out of pre-picked names after our first few children. So our last several times in the hospital, uh, we just frequently spend time you know, when she's going to labor, walking up and down the hallway and talking about names and like, see what happens. You know, no, no need to have it all figured out in advance. The name be. is not just a name, it's a presence. Yeah. When you go to the bank and you try to cash a check in your own name and you only have a few dollars in the account, they're not going to give you the money. But if your father's a millionaire and he wrote you out a check, you check it in his name and you get the money. Yeah. Yeah. It was not just a label, it's a real presence. Yeah. yeah. I, my name is John Allen Soul the Third. And so it's like for me it's always been a, a sense of legacy. But there's also been difficult times in uh, my father and my grandfather, my great grandfather and on back, and yet I've witnessed the her heroism of my dad, you know, kind of breaking a lot of generational chains that had been perpetuated through mm -hmm. and um and so for years, I, I never really thought about my name other than it's kind of cool that I'm the third. But as 
this deep sense of healing and conversion that's happened between me and my father and uh, the, what I've come to terms with with the redemption of my grandfather uh, is that it's it's something to be prou- proud of in the healthiest way, you know, yeah. that your name is sacred. And, of course, my confirmation name is St. Maximilian Colby. You know, that's, that's mm. for me, also part of it because... Uh, my it connects you to past generations yes. as part of the whole human experience of life itself. Yes. One of the profoundest lines in Elie Wiesel's uh, harrowing account of the Holocaust night is yeah. that the worst thing the Nazis did to them was to take away their names. They had yeah. no names, only numbers. No numbers, yeah. You remember the, the musical version of Les Mis, the, the classic song, number 24601, and yeah, the Javert is singing, and Jean Valjean keeps replying with, the name is Jean Valjean, and he's like, number 24601. Yes. And it's that, that destruction of, of your identity. Um, I know you're a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings, uh, which I am too, my favorite, my favorite books. But a name is ideally an identity. It should say something about who we are. And that made me think of the Ents when the hobbits first meet them and they ask Treebeard his name. And, you know, he has to give them the short version Treebeard because he said, <laughs> yeah. our names are growing with us all the time. Yeah. You know, it would basically take forever to tell you the name. Well, you know, when Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, that's an implicit claim of divinity. Only God can change your name. I think today, mm. even today, Orthodox Jews are not allowed to change their name. I didn't know that. Because that's that's given to them by God. I've got and that's it. saying who the person is. So if God changes your name, he's changing you. And that happens in the Old Testament. I'm a- Abram versus Abraham. Right. Jacob versus uh, uh, Israel. Israel. Yeah. Right. And Simon versus Peter. I had a whole list of names. I've got one child, one son, uh, so far. And uh, I had... This list of names, and these are the top choices. There's about 20 names. And my wife and I had gone on a trip in 2021, and, uh, and I was praying at the, uh, the, the Our Lady of the Leche shrine there. And uh, whenever I was praying, I felt like, if you have a son from this trip, you should name him David. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's not on my list. I'm not going to do that. So I kept praying. I kept thinking it. And then I tell my wife, hey, this is crazy. But if a son comes from this trip, you should name him David. Uh, not one of the list of 20 other names we came up with. And then sure enough, you know, nine months later, I remember seeing the, I remember seeing the ultrasound and knowing we had a baby on the way. And I'm thinking, well, we have to name him David. And then, uh, you know. Months later, you know, you find out it's a boy and I go, okay, well, it is a David for sure. I wasn't given a girl's name. There was no on the on this trip. So uh, I'm like, I guess I have to name him David now, not Ambrose, which is what I initially did. So I, I met it in the middle and I made the middle name Ambrose. There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to tell me what is the tradition with the four names. Because you brought it up. Yeah, that's true. I've never heard Yeah, of I didn't know that tradition. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if it's particularly a tradition, but it seems like with the adding of saints' names and so forth, Catholic, many cultures traditionally have had a lot of names. Yeah. You know, you find people's multiple names. True. And we're used to just the first, middle, and last, which is what we did with our first children. And then we decided to start throwing Isn't more names. Isn't the fourth name the confirmation name? I suppose so, yeah. That's but I how think, I would assume. Yeah. yeah. I think some people have done multiple I'm names. Peter anyway. John Thomas. Yeah. So maybe I'm completely wrong on that. Anyway, we just gave our kids extra names then well, for the heck of a well, You are Peter, John, or, John Thomas. Yes. That's a that's good awesome. combination that's a very apostolic. there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, this, this also speaks to in the book of Revelation, right, where uh, Jesus 
talks about those overcome will be given a new name. Yes. That's not just like a new label to stick on you. It's a it's a new you. Yes. Or or you as you are all, already right. always were supposed it's so to be. So unique that no one knows that name except God. Right. Yes. Because no one uh, can fathom who you are to the depths of your being except yes. the one who made you. And it speaks. I've never thought of that before. That's and beautiful. And it speaks to the reality of the it, you're not dung. You are actually snow covered in dung. And Christ is the only well, you're not covered. Well, not in heaven. One. There's no dung in heaven. Well, obviously. But it's all snow then. Yeah, we're all snow in heaven. Okay, sure. But Christ Diamond, is the diamonds. only one who can enter in and like the garbage man, but in a way that's impossible as far as what we understand, it separate the filth and the darkness from our souls and transform us. And if we want that above all things in this life, and if we get that in purgatory, purgatory will be part of heaven, not part of hell. Right. It's not an in-between. It's the what's it the anteroom to heaven, the washroom. The washroom. The clean-up of the party. Bath. Yeah. It'll hurt, you know. Please let me have the bath. Well, I think that that goes back to something you said in the in the last segment when we were talking about pain and suffering. Um, there is a difference if you are sick, and you say, "I don't want to be well." We may not. We don't need to enjoy pain, right? That would be right. rather. That would be rather masochistic. But if you say then to the doctor, I don't care how bad it hurts, please make me well, there is a certain joy then, or can be, in that process, because you know it's doing the right thing because you want to be well. It's your genuine love of yourself that accounts for that, but it's your genuine love for other people that accounts for the difference between some tyrant making you do a deed and you're wanting to do that deed for your beloved, be the knight on shining armor. Yeah. It's difficult, but you embrace that difficulty. Yeah. You talked about free will earlier, and, and speaking of that, you know, you said God could have made us all, you know, fundamentally robotics, happy animals in the in the garden, but perhaps the the greatest thing is without that free will, we could never have understood love. We could never have had the choice to love. It's amazing that we can do something that God Himself can't do. We can choose to love Him. <laughs> in creating us, He didn't quite literally take away any of his power, but something like that, he gave us a godlike power, the power to be a first cause. Because that's what freedom means. It's not yeah. something something simply determined by prior causes. You right. initiate a new chain in that. That's amazing. You can change outcomes through your choices. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. And love that's not free is not really love. Right. And you see this so played out in families, you know, men not taking responsibility for the children they've conceived or using women and dispensing with them or women manipulating men, because obviously we know it goes both ways in mm -hmm. that. And children oftentimes are neglected. And we've created a whole society where it seems that parents want to have a right to children, when in truth, it should be the opposite on some level. Children mm -hmm. should have a right to parents. Yeah. Uh, and Dr. Grafe, I just wanted to let you know and ask ask for your prayers for the Archdiocese of Louisville and for um, and all our uh, the apostolates and movements that are starting to take place within Louisville because there's a lot of good that's starting to bloom from mm. uh, a lot of many years of uh, wondering and wandering 
perhaps. And uh, the apostle that I serve with, which actually my bosses are the ones who brought this podcast, uh, connected us to Isaac, yeah. which is a great gift. Uh, that's Donna and Gary Burry. They, they're directors and founders of Family Renewal Project. Mm -hmm. And uh, I they serve... gave me my copy of uh, Wisdom of the Heart over there. Yeah, their names are that's in right. there. Yeah. yeah, they're great, great, a great family, great couple. And uh, they have lots of spiritual children, but I serve as director of discipleship for that apostolate. And we have a lot of different courses and classes, and it's basically the TOB apostolate mm. in Louisville. That is our entire bread and butter. That's what we hope to Well, you know what George Weigel said about the TOB. It's the greatest uh, thing since Thomas Aquinas. It's revolutionary. It's the answer to the sexual revolution. And so how do we share that more effectively? I mean, what's your experience with TOB, I guess? Or how would you... Everyone that I have ever talked to, read, or heard about that has investigated TOB has come away impressed. It's try it, you'll like it. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely something that's changed my life, and I'm, I'm very thankful for it. Because as we've been talking about, the, the breakdown of the family and the confusion with gender and all of the addictions people suffer from, it, it's how can we better... Um, reach people with love and truth. I feel like Theology of the Body gives us a language of some sort to, to actually address these things with the right timing and tone. And, and this, is a, <laughs> this is something of a part of the answer to the problem of evil. If, if there hadn't been the sexual revolution, there wouldn't have been the need for the TOB. No. Uh, the church comes out with creeds only in response to heresies. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it feels like some of this conversation has, has nicely come full circle with this because you took us back to the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, which John Paul II does as well in Theology of the yeah. Body. And we talked about how it is destroying the image of God that brings about the first fall. And it seems to me that Theology of the Body is, as you said, the antidote of the sexual revolution, but it is that way of restoring the authentic image of what man is supposed to be. And this is why when that is restored, it's not just the Garden of Eden over again. It's something much better. Yes. One of the most daring lines of any theologian in history is Augustine's famous O Felix Culpa. Yeah. It's a dangerous line. <laughs> oh, very dangerous line, but profoundly true. Yeah, yeah. The worst thing that ever happened is, in a sense, the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. Oh, happy fault that its merits so great and such and so great a But redeemer. that's true of the crucifixion, too. Here's yeah. the greatest evil ever perpetrated, the deliberate torture and murder of God himself, yes. which is the source of our redemption. Yeah. I know you've uh, appeared a number of times uh, with Matt Fratt and Pints of Aquinas, a show I love to watch. And I was watching an episode recently, and I cannot remember the priest's name, but it's about the Shroud of Turin. And I don't know if you've seen or listened to that, that episode. Yeah. And I turned it on because it said new evidence for the Shroud of Turin, thinking it was going to be more or less academic, mm. which it did have a fair amount of that in it and uh, uh, far more evidence than I was even aware of. But about halfway through, what came home to me was not just the knowledge about the Shroud of Turin, it was the overwhelming visceral reality of the suffering of Christ in a way I never, mm -hmm. I never realized before. Um, and it was, it was moving, it was powerful, it was, it was beautiful. Um, and I think the, that the, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's one thing to have the cross or have the crucifix and, and look at it from time to time, but we don't maybe 
connect always with the horror of the reality of that, of just how bad it really was. Because we hear saints being horribly tortured. Not just tortured. physically, but spiritually. Oh, God. Right. I mean, his, his, his foreseeing of that in the Garden of Gethsemane almost brought him to, uh, to despair. Father, yeah. if, if it be possible, let this pass from me. Yeah. And he sweat blood. Sweat blood, yes. Well, and, that was, and I wanted to go there because that's one of the things this priest mentioned. He speaks of the, the psychological condition, rare, but it can happen, in which such a tremendous fear of death leads one to that sweating of blood, which I'd heard this roughly yep. before. What I didn't know, though, was he said when that condition happens, it causes an increased sensitivity in the nerves of your skin. So every touch is painful. Even a, a breath of wind across the skin hurts. The first contact that Jesus had after that was Judas kissing him. Oh. So he points out how the kiss of the betrayer actually hurt. And yet he called him friend. Wow. Yeah. It's like almost brings you to tears. It's a great episode. Oh, but I mean, the, it just brings you to such a, a visceral reality of the sufferings of Christ. I it's think what, what brought on that terror and that sweat of blood was another temptation of the devil where God permitted the devil to show him all the people that would go to hell despite what he would do for them on the cross. Mm. Is there any suffering greater than the suffering that is self-inflicted on the part of somebody that you deeply love? And then it's no. futile, right? Yep. I did all this for that person and then they still didn't. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that would be... And, and to think of our own family members, the people we deeply love that we want and pray for their conversion, for their openness. And you know that no matter how much we pray or sacrifice or long for them to open their hearts, you can't control that. Mm -hmm. And that there will be a day where they will have to make a choice and respond to the invitation or not. We, and how can we be happy in heaven if our brother or sister or parents or people didn't make it? I mean, how, how can that make well, sense? Well, we certainly couldn't be happy on earth if we knew that. Yeah. yeah. We just talked about this in a sacramental theology class last night that um, it's a great gift. That we that we don't know yes, uh, anyone's yes, state. Yes. Because you know, if if a mother was to know that her, her child was was going to go to hell or had died and gone to hell, um, you know, how how could she continue yes. on earth? Um, and likewise, you know, um, not knowing anyone's state or the presumption that that someone had gone to heaven uh, again, um, you don't want to just say, oh, you know, God's mercy is so great. We don't really need to do anything. We don't really need to do the right thing because that mercy is always there and it's endless. You can't presume these things. It's a gift for us to grow in virtue. There's so many things that we're blissfully kept in ignorance of. I mean, take the positive things. Suppose, suppose God showed us every good effect that every one of our good prayers made. Uh, we pray for somebody and that somebody is gifted with a grace and therefore prays for somebody else who is gifted with the grace and therefore prays with some, for somebody else. Uh, there's an Eastern Orthodox saying, uh, if, if you uh, do one good deed to your neighbor this afternoon, somebody that you never dreamed of 300 years from now on the other side of the world is going to have enough grace to overcome their temptations, and if not, not. So if God ever showed us all the good that our prayers did, we would be so overwhelmed with responsibility. We'd never be able to get off, off our knees for the rest of our lives. Yeah. It's a spiritual butterfly effect. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, yeah. There's a, talking about this, this knowledge or lack thereof of who's in heaven, who's in hell. 
uh, reminds me of The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis mm. uh, because it's been years since I've read this, so you can correct my memory on it. But there is the lady who gets the, the trip to heaven, and she's concerned about the state of her son. Yes. She finds out he's in heaven. He's he's gone way way further on, up towards the mountains, into the kingdom, you know, whatever. And she's being encouraged to follow. And basically, her response is, "Well, if I get to be with him, I'll I'll do it." Right. And she is being told that basically she's replacing God with her son, mm-hmm. and she needs to let go of that. And then eventually, she will see him again. Right. And she eventually, uh, doesn't she kind of reject the whole yes, idea and chooses to yep. go back to hell? Yep, yep. It shows how something good and high and holy can be nevertheless a temptation. And, and become an idol. Yep. Our, our own children, our spouses, our parents, yep. uh, the best things in the world can become an idol. And in the great divorce, the only one visitor from hell who does get to stay in heaven is the most miserable one of all, that little boy who has that lizard on his shoulder shouting obscenities into his ear. Yes! And he's so disgusted with it that he finally says to the angel, oh, kill it, I don't care. And then he rides off on the white horse. <laughs> on and the stallion, yes. It's so beautiful. My favorite thing about The Great Divorce is uh, this one little bit, but I, I think there's this great misunderstanding, and I think maybe it's a modern misunderstanding, of heaven as being something just silly, ridiculous, frou-frou, sitting on a fluffy cloud, plucking mm-hmm. a harp. Mm-hmm. Because we hear all the, you know, the comedians, uh, Mark Twain and people like that always, I'd rather hang out with the people in hell and smoking cigars and telling good stories. This is where the real people are. This is where it's going to be fun. Right. And and so there's this, this very false notion of heaven, whereas heaven is the richest, most real thing we can imagine. We can't imagine it. Uh, or, or exactly. And there's the my favorite part about the great divorce is where the people who have come to heaven to check it out from hell are pained walking across the yep. grass because yep. the grass is so real it's hard, it yep. cuts their feet. They yep. can't handle it. But those in heaven who are so fully real, so fully actualized, uh, no problem to them whatsoever. Yep. They yep. can handle that reality. It's not saying that heaven is softer than hell. It's more real. Harder. It's tougher. It's bigger. It's harder than hell. Yes. I, I like how you say that you can't imagine what heaven's like, and yet having written a book about this. Well, rush in where angels fear to tread. It does say everything you wanted to know about heaven. Right. It's a joke. I know. I know. I get it. I get it. I love that. The Great Divorce is a masterpiece. Yeah, if yeah, if any of our audience has not read it yet, uh, please do. It's the Divine Comedy brought up to date. Yeah, it's mm. wonderful, wonderful. And I, I think... I've seen it performed four times on stage by four really? different groups. I didn't know it had ever been made into a play. All, group, all the groups were amateurs. Uh, t- I think two were Protestant, one was Catholic, one was secular. Every single time, the audience was stunned to silence by the play. Yeah. And it was done very differently. One, went, one had elaborate sets, one had no sets at all. It's, it's stunning. You mentioned George MacDonald earlier, who, if memory serves me correctly, I believe was a universalist, right? Like von Balthasar, he hoped for universalism. He was not dogmatic about it. And he was very influential on Lewis. And uh, would I be correct in saying that maybe this was kind of Lewis's answer to that problem? Because he, he doesn't make it a condemnation to go to hell. We they all have, have the option to go to heaven. We they, don't know. Yeah. 
We just don't know. When, when the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, are many saved? They're probably thinking, hey, let's, let's get the data on the comparative population statistics of heaven and hell from him before he leaves. Right. So yeah. we'll know. If he says 90% are saved, we'll relax. If he says 10% are saved, we'll sweat. If he says 50% are saved, we'll be confused, but at least we'll know the data. Yeah. <laughs> How many you know his answer? <laughs> Strive to enter in. Yeah. Mm. It goes back no to what answer. you said. It's to good to no not answer. know these things. Yes. 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 They will lead to presumption or despair. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Here's a question for you, because I've asked this a couple different times, and I've only gotten one answer that vaguely answered it. But, you know, so many people that I grew up with in high school, they would often talk about confirmation as conformation because they didn't understand their faith. And a lot of people were like, well, if Jesus was real, then why did he leave? You know, and there's many of my high school friends, I remember, even in college, when many people are losing their faith now, we're saying, well, eventually some archaeologist is going to just find Jesus's bones and disprove all these myths, right? So my question for you is, why would you say Jesus ascended into heaven when he had resurrected? It was obvious there were witnesses that he could have remained alive and proven himself for centuries. Well, he himself gave you a direct answer to that question in John's gospel when he says to the uh, apostles, if I do not go, I will not send the Holy Spirit. It's better for us to have the Holy Spirit than to have Jesus. I mean, suppose you could have Jesus Christ in person, personally, on this podcast. Mm -hmm. You'd get a, tr a, a billion listeners. Yeah. But Jesus said, no, that wouldn't be so great. What you got is better. Because the Holy Spirit is in a subtler way, but a, but a profounder way inside you. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, Jesus like, walking around out there. Right, right. It's, it's, it's like a good haunting. He's the yeah. Holy Ghost. Yeah. yeah. We chose the right uh, person of the Trinity to include in our title, Spirit Inspire. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I would agree. Yeah. Mm. I would because agree. that's what love wants, intimacy. Already in the Old Testament, God is the Father, an intimate relationship with the absolute transcendent being. And then he becomes one of us, which is even more intimate in the incarnation. And, and the Holy Spirit is even more intimately present in the soul, although all three persons are, than, than Jesus is. He gets inside you, not just beside you. And he hints at that at the resurrection with um, Mary Magdalene when he says, do not cling to me, I have yes. not yet ascended to my Father. And so you could... I think it would be the easy human choice to make to cling to Jesus. Don't go away. As you said, be here in our podcast, have dinner with us, stay in our home. But he says, I'm going to visibly go away, but send you the Holy Spirit. So you have faith. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And he's still present with us in the Eucharist. And but even, we now even, have even, it even, inside. Even in that realist of presences in the Eucharist, he rarely gives us a sense of his presence. Yes. The Eucharist tastes like ordinary bread. Thank you for saying you that. You don't have mystical experiences every time you receive communion. Yeah. It's so ordinary. One of the, one of the things that was really has been really important to me is when I became Catholic and I was in that process, on that journey, and I had come to believe in the real presence, I could not imagine how awesome that must be. Like, I'm going to really receive God. I'm going to have Jesus inside of me. And I expected, and of course, if you read the lives of the saints, you know, you hear about some amazing experiences. Right. So I expected to be emotionally just overwhelmed from, from the get-go. And rarely, for many years, did I ever have any kind of emotional feeling at all. When COVID started, and we couldn't go to Mass for a while, I had never been a person who went with any frequency to daily Mass. 
And for all the tragedy that COVID was, a little silver lining, at least for me, was sometimes you don't realize what you've got until it's gone. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking then, when we can go back to Mass, I'm getting to every daily Mass I can possibly get to. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I have discovered is that, and I've had some moments of maybe prayer, you know, and some emotions seem very deep to me. But for most of my life as a Catholic, the majority of times that I received communion for many, many years, I didn't have any clear feeling of anything. But what I did notice, and I always noticed it in hindsight, was something changing, which is the whole point of the grace is not to give us happy feelings. Mm -hmm. It's to make us new, to make us different people. And um, I think I had... I think it's a lesson I needed to learn because I think I probably had a little bit of an addiction to emotions, mm-hmm. right? You're in the right yeah. relationship with God if you're having these powerful feelings. Jesus has. And, right, and God's <laughs> saying, um, but you're still behaving rotten, so you're not in the right relationship with me. And what I find the Eucharist does over time is you start to look back and say, I didn't even notice, but my life has been changing. Yep. I didn't feel it. I didn't yep. even notice, yep. but something's been happening. The Eucharist is not like a hurricane blowing on the surface of the water, spectacular waves. It's like the tides. It's unstoppable. It's yeah. deeper and more mysterious. You know, I have to say this because I looked outside. We have windows here. Snow's falling. You can see the snow is falling, right? And um, as we're sp- speaking of the Eucharist, I think of you know the body of Christ being within each of us and our own physical bodies and the importance of celebrating the eternal life that we are striving to enter and yet the human life that we oftentimes forget or snuff out in even in the womb right and so praise god that roe versus wade was overturned and all of what we've experienced and last month they had the march for life and the victory march and uh, i wasn't able to go um i've gotten to go many years but uh my wife works at the Kentucky School for the Blind. And so I was there and uh, celebrating them win first place for their cheerleading competition. So on some level, with these many of these kids who had severe disabilities, I was kind of at my own march for life. But that morning of Roe versus Wade, the 50th anniversary, I walked outside and, and that morning here in Louisville, it was snowing very intensely. And um, it was... It was like a grace from God, but it was almost like the snow sacramentally represented the countless children Hmm. that have interceded for that Hmm. decision to be overturned. Quietly and silently, like the flakes. Yes. And and then the recognition of what we've been discussing here, it's snowing, and, and there's that purity of heart, that utter transformation of the human person, so that it's... We can't cling to Jesus, but it doesn't mean he's disembodied in his resurrection. You know, I would say he was not saying, don't touch me. He's saying, don't hold on to me. Stop hugging me. Mm -hmm. You can't, you got to let go. She was Mm -hmm. probably like bear hugging him. Like, I can't let you out of my sight. You can't keep me this way. You're going to keep me deeper in. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it is, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I just had to share that as we were reflecting. The greatest of saints have the greatest of uh, Dark Night of the Souls, Mother Teresa, almost a lifetime of it. I feel like that's when I get the most stuff done, is the the less I feel, um, it's really hard to explain, or the less that I see 
obviously I've got great stories in my life of, of tangible signs I feel like God has given me. But it, it's on those weeks when, when things are just very hard, the baby's up all night. Um, it does seem like that's when the, mo- the most motion of God is, is actually in my life, is when I can't, I can't feel him. Spinach doesn't taste as good as sugar, but it does more healthy. Yes. There is... Um, <laughs> God yeah. doesn't want us to get a spiritual sweet tooth. Yeah. Right. You probably know the reference. I'm, I'm not going to get this right, but there is a story. I don't know if it's just a story or if it's actually from some vision of the life of the saints, uh, but of someone having a dream or vision in which there were three nuns and Jesus comes spends a lot of time talking to one of them um, and she's very happy you know with this conversation with Jesus the next one doesn't spend quite so much time last one he just kind of smiles and passes by and the person who had the dream or vision says well I assume that he loved the first one the most she was the best and the last one and you know where this is going right it was completely the opposite the the first one was the weakest, the youngest, mm-hmm. the least formed, who needed yeah. those sensible consolations the most. And it was yeah. the holiest, the closest to him, was the one that could just do with the smile when he walked yeah. by. Yeah. That's very true. Which is why we shouldn't be hooked on miracles. Yeah. If you need a miracle, there's a problem. Yeah. And if an age and a culture like us needs miracles, it's in deep doo-doo. Yeah. Yes. So, um, well, Dr. Craft, I know here in a few minutes, we're uh, going to be getting some dinner for you and you're going to be going over to Immaculata. But I would just kind of like to ask one or one sort of final broad question. We started off today with asking about what's the worst idea in the world. And you referred to Alexander Solzhenitsyn's, you know, Men Have Forgotten God. I think it is unquestionable that we do see a lot of concerns and challenges and really big problems in civilization uh, right now, but we never want to focus purely on the negative either. That's why um, we have Ha. Yes, well. yes, we've yes. got the, the How to Destroy Western Civilization, and then I think humor could be involved in helping civilization back, but of course we see humor even getting uh, steadily... Um, Base throttled. Yeah, yeah, destroyed. Beauty will save the world, though. Yeah. Right? There's, there's some wisdom to that. What, um, what thoughts would you give on a positive note on the current state of affairs? I mean, I think we could be really basic and say the world's a mess because we've forgotten God. We need to remember God for it to not be a mess. But anything more, spe- more specific, more kind of practical. What, what is, what does our Western civilization need right Thanks. now? Mm. And the only That's way that practical. can happen is by choice. There's a Jewish legend about, uh, I think it's the 12 righteous men who keep the yeah. world alive. Yeah. If it goes down to 11, God will destroy the world. So uh, nobody knows who those 12 are. So you might be number 12. And uh, that, that, much like Abraham's prayers about Lot and Sodom. Yep. Yes. But that also reminds me of, in Christian times, of St. Jean Vianney. Was it or Padre Pio? I think it was St. John Vianney. The devil, in one of his appearances to him, actually said, if there were three priests like you, my kingdom in this world would be broken. Yep. You know, um, we don't realize the power of a single saint, but I liked what you said about the 12th one might be you. Um, because I think, and maybe this is a great reflection to kind of end with, we all think of saints as people out there, other people who have, done these amazing things 
And we forget the fact that God calls each and every one of us to be a saint. It doesn't mean we jump straight off the cliff and start trying to perform penances, right? Follow God's grace. But that is ultimately the only thing that each one of us has been called to. And yeah, could be anybody in this room. Each of the most recent popes has emphasized the universal call to holiness. Uh, and, and a saint usually doesn't think of himself as a saint. Mm-hmm. I mean, St. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. So if you think of yourself as a saint, you're almost certainly not one. Padre Pio said, I'm a mystery unto myself. Yes. <laughs> He's like, what's going on with me? Yes. Yeah. Again, maybe one of God's blessings of not letting us know or see everything. And one of God's great jokes. Yeah. yeah. What? That's a saint? Yeah. Yep. You thought you were the worst and most miserable of creatures, and yet you're a, crown in the star, a star in the crown of God. So, yeah. Of all the books you've written, what's your favorite book? Uh, if you mean what is my best written book, it's probably the one on Pascal, because it quotes Pascal, who is the most brilliant contemporary apologist. If you mean which book I would most want everybody in the world to read at gunpoint, if I could, it's probably Jesus Shock, because that gets to the, uh, the thing we talked about earlier, namely, who is he? Is he your, your Lord? Is he your everything? If it's the book that caused me the most blood, sweat, and tears and time, it's my novel or non-novel, An Ocean Full of Angels, uh, which is not a great novel because it's not a novel at all, but it's not great either. But but, uh, I think those who like it will be few, but they'll like it a lot because there's a lot of me in it. I actually meant, what was the book that you enjoyed writing the most? Heaven, the heart's deepest longing. Okay. It's about what Lewis calls joy, that mysterious longing for something we can't define. Yeah. You did a, you did a talk a few years ago, I think, it, I think maybe at Steubenville, on uh, 10 books that, what was it, No Catholic Should Die Without Reading? I think or, it was an Immaculata. Oh, it was an Immaculata, yeah. right. Same oh, place you've been right. a few years that's ago. That's right. Yeah, that's a, that's, a great, that's a great video. It can be found on YouTube to check it out. And on, on that note, kind of a, a final question for me, since the topic of your talk at Immaculata tonight is uh, raising saints in the digital age. And I know that many people who will watch and listen to this podcast will also probably be there tonight. So we don't want to go over the same ground twice. But just on a practical note, for those of us who have children, this is a big concern, right? Um, I have eight children. Um, Eric and his wife just were blessed with their first last year. John still is a child. I'm just kidding. John. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We're still waiting and praying. Yeah. My wife says hi, by the way. She didn't get to be here. So. Yeah. But what would be one or two of the biggest practical tips that you could just, maybe as we close throughout there, for those of us who are Catholic parents that are very worried about the, the concerns and challenges of this digital age, what can we do? One thing above all, love them to heaven. Love them like crazy, no matter how embarrassing that is to them or to you. And it will be. Yeah. I've often said that I think Mm. that children are partly there to embarrass us. Of course. To teach us humility. I I had all these (laughs) notions before I got married of... 
having children and being the the perfect father and you know <laughs> teaching the, my children things and they would understand it all and they'd behave perfectly and I would I would say the the rosary by the the baby's crib and he would fall asleep and I get all these pictures in my head none of which was was accurate but I'll, just a last little story I'll share you I'll share with you so uh, the parish that my wife and I attend St Martin of Tours in downtown this was some years back well quite some years back now and the priest at the time was uh, Father Frederick Clotter and our third son was fairly young at the time, and he was a child of great energy. Great kid, but especially at a young age, he was a handful. There's no denying it. And you always assume that children, especially when they're trying to climb all over the pews and distracting, and you know, I can't hear the homily because I'm trying to take care of this kid, you assume they don't either. But children hear everything. They're always little antenna up all the time. So he had recently just had the opportunity to see Toy Story, and he was very taken with Buzz Lightyear. And so I remember my wife and I and our three kids were, were in the pew, and he's definitely everywhere. He's being his usual handful. And Father, somewhere in his homily, says something about the divinity of Christ. And it filtered in a little bit into my son Ezra's ear. And he popped up on the pew and says, after hearing the word divinity, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. And of course, we wanted to crawl underneath a few hide, but God was laughing though. Yeah. It was. It was a great. It was a beautiful moment. So I think. I think children are designed to keep us humble, not not in a bad way, but to remember we're all children, so we don't take ourselves too seriously. Yeah. That's at the our end of the deepest day. identity. God Absolutely. teaches us something about ourselves and everything, uh, and I suggest that it might be useful to. Um, contemplate what he's trying to tell us in designing diaper poop. <laughs> the first diaper I changed of my son's, when I take it up, it's in the shape of perfect heart. Oh, that's uh, beautiful. And it, yeah. I don't know if it was beautiful. I didn't keep it. but uh, <laughs> Emotionally, it's beautiful, yeah, yeah. Not, not in the actual object. Yeah, yeah. Write yeah. about it or something. But, uh, yeah. That's wonderful. Well, this has been, this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, Dr. Crave, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Any, any final thoughts, anything you want to share? God love you. And, and you work. as well. Thank you so thank much. You so thank much. you for well, everything. God bless you. It's been a real honor to have you with us today. And uh, we will see you all next week on Spirit and Spire. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And we'll see you all next week. God bless you all. Thank mm-hmm. you.